Well, thank you for joining me as we continue our study of the book of Genesis. I'm your host, Randy Duncan. And in this episode, we're going to take a look at chapter 9, which picks up on Noah's exit from the ark that we saw in the last episode. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you now, we're going to discuss a few topics in this episode that may feel like they're off the beaten path just a bit. But with that said, I'm jumping right in. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God blesses Noah and his sons, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And this simply underscores the divine blessing on humanity as they undertake a new beginning. You know, many believers think about and consider at times the fact that we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. But rarely do they consider that we're also descendants of Noah. In fact, since Noah was a descendant of Adam and Eve's son Seth, we're descendants of Seth as well. But not Cain. Cain was a murderer and whose descendants would have been wiped out in the flood. No, we're all descendants of Noah, who was considered a righteous man. And maybe the next chapter would have been a better place to just bring this up, but I can't help myself now. I've always found it interesting how hung up society is on race and country of origin and ancestry. I mean, whether people identify as African-American, Italian-American, and so forth and so on, it's just interesting to me. And don't get me wrong, learning your ancestry is neat, it's fun, it's interesting. And various cultures bring different celebrations and customs, traditions, um, not to mention the food. And so I think it's important in those regards to know who you are and where you came from and to have a certain amount of pride in your culture. But the reality is that if you keep going back far enough, we're all related through Noah. All of us. And the further back you go, the more those distinct lines of ancestry begin to blur and eventually they just disappear altogether as you begin to realize that we're all related. I've considered this more often after taking a graduate class in the origin of man and his genetic journey in populating the planet. And it's really something to stop and consider that those who you think are so much different than you had their beginning in a similar clan as your ancestors did. And it's worth the time to do a quick study, for example, on where and how different races even came to be in the first place. So, for example, we have people in the Middle East, the cradle of civilization, the fertile crescent. They were probably brown-skinned. Some of those people broke out on their own and they traveled north until eventually... They settled in Europe, where they experienced the harsh winters and ice age, and they would need to take advantage of any available sunlight. As a result, the genius of God's biological design allows their genetics to respond, eventually resulting in less pigmentation in their skin and thus a lighter skin color that would help absorb as much sunlight as possible. This would have aided in converting the sun's ultraviolet rays to much-needed vitamin D in that area. In the same way, but in reverse, those in the Middle East who traveled and settled in a southern direction, say, deeper into Africa and more tropical climates, and so their need would have been just the opposite. They would develop more skin pigmentation and thus a darker skin color. The darker skin color is simply an adaptation to protect the body from the sun's harmful UV rays. So in short, this explains why the people that migrated to more northern, colder geographic areas farther from the equator developed light skin color 
and those who migrated closer to the equator with the more intense UV rays developed darker skin color. So these two groups of people, for example, now have a different skin color as a result of where they live. But how else are they different? Okay, so they may eat different foods, also because of where they live and what's available. They may develop some different customs and traditions, but how are they essentially different in their humanity? The answer? They're not different. Some of the people went north, some went south. They started out in the same place. They were created in the image of God then, and after their skin colors changed, they're still created in the image of God. And that's still the case today. And the sooner we all figure that out, the sooner we can live together in a more peaceful world and in a society with much less racial tension. You know, for everyone who desires to see peace in the world, and that's certainly a good and noble aspiration, just because there would potentially not be any official war or conflicts going on between countries doesn't mean that people would not continue to be abused or killed. For example, after World War II in the Soviet Union, approximately 50 to 60 million people were murdered in so-called peacetime. There was no war going on. But that doesn't stop an evil regime from killing its own people. So don't be fooled. Especially if you're a Christian. And even though Christians, at least in the West in modern times, have enjoyed much religious peace, don't get a false sense of security. This time won't last. Scripture tells us so. I mean, look around you at the trends you're seeing and consider what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verses 2 and 3, when he said, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy day today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And folks, the first step in winning any war is to realize that you're in one. But in all transparency, I personally just don't believe we'll achieve lasting world peace through any political alliances or economic policies that we push, uh, any peace treaties signed by mankind. Uh, even if we elect more capable leaders or focus on social justice, I just believe that true and lasting peace will come only through the Prince of Peace, Christ Jesus. And if you're wondering how all this turns out in the end, I'll probably move to the book of Revelation after we complete Genesis. We can take a closer look at how the peace efforts of man turn out. So again, God tells Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply. This is essentially a command, or at least a blessing, to increase human life. And we'll see in a few verses that God enacts the death penalty for murder. And so the second law God gives is to eliminate those people who intentionally decrease human life. Notice also that God didn't change the penalty based on the skin color of the person. Notice also that just as the, the fall of Adam and Eve didn't prevent God from still blessing them, here too, the judgment of the flood doesn't stop God from blessing them and telling them to be fruitful and multiply. Verse 2 through 4, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. 
Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So it uses that phrase, the fear of you and the dread of you. This Hebrew word or phrase seems to be stronger than merely meaning to rule over. In fact, it's a military term. And it means exactly what it says, to have a sense of fear, to have a sense of dread or terror. And it implies that the relationship between humans and animals is not going to be ideal. And that may be partly due to the fact that God now declares that meat has been added to the diet. Remember, a strong case can be made that in the beginning, mankind was vegetarian. And we touched on that in one of the earlier episodes. But now, humanity has even more power of life and death over the animals. However, God does add a caveat for the eating of meat that they cannot eat animals that die themselves. Later on in Leviticus, we read that the covenant people are prohibited from eating an animal found dead. But here also, blood is equated with life. Leviticus 17.11 tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God here is forbidding the eating of blood. You know, it's been pointed out that man has the right to nourishment, but not to life. And so the blood, which is the symbol of life, must be drained. It must be returned to God, who is the author of life. And by forbidding eating the blood, this regulation instills a a sacredness of life, and it also protects against abuse of the animal. This commandment of God also forbids the eating of an animal while it's still alive. Now, as cruel as it seems, and I, I, I honestly don't remember where I've read this, that people would lop off an animal's lamb while it was still alive, cook it, and eat it. And they did this because food was scarce and of the likelihood that the meat would spoil before they could eat all of it. So they kept the animal alive for as long as possible, just eating it a little at a time. Well, again, God forbids this. He forbids eating flesh with its life. In treating animals humanely, it's legislated or ordained in the Torah ten times. So, for example, Deuteronomy 25.4 says you can't muzzle an ox while it's working in the field. Exodus 23.5 obligates us to help an animal that's overwhelmed by a burden. And did you realize that they were even commanded to give animals a day of rest? I mean, that's part of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20.10, to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, also on the Sabbath, even the animals were not to do any work. Verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So here, God outlaws murder. And in doing so, he institutes capital punishment, the death penalty for committing murder. Even animals that kill a person are to be put to death. Now everyone knows the Ten Commandments contain the commandment, you shall not murder. But this is a long time before the Ten Commandments. A very long time. Remember, there's no Israel yet. There's no Jew yet. Israel's still very much in the distant future. So this law is for everyone. It's fundamental to an ordered society. 
And why does God implement the death penalty for murder? Because every human is made in the image of God. Are you starting to pick up on that theme here? And an assault on a human is an assault on an image bearer of God. Now, some people argue against the death penalty and they argue against it for various reasons. But one of the reasons is the belief that only God has the right to take life. But I want you to notice something here. Who does God specifically set up to execute the murderer? Other people. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. God expects human beings to take the life of the murderer. You know, it's interesting when you look at the other law codes from the ancient world, in several of them, money could ransom a murderer. In other words, some law codes offered murderers alternatives to the death penalty. So, for example, the family of the victim could accept money from the murderer in return for a pardon. But by allowing murderers to pay a bribe to the family, it gave a great advantage to wealthy murderers. I mean, heck, we even see this today, where wealthy people are able to hire the best defense attorneys and they get reduced sentences or they even get off scot-free. But this practice of paying money to the family for a murder it's in direct contradiction to what the Bible teaches. Numbers 35:31 tells us, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. The death penalty for murder is instituted to preserve the sanctity of life. Why? Because every human being is created in the image of God. Murder is the ultimate crime and so the Bible demands the ultimate penalty. Verses 7 through 11 read, And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God establishes a covenant with Noah and his sons as well as the animals. Notice also, this is a unilateral covenant. God is making this covenant by himself. It's not a contingent arrangement. This covenant, this promise is that God will never again destroy all life with a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And we may take this for granted, but think of how Noah and his family would have potentially felt after leaving the ark and after everything they had seen. Everything they knew had been wiped out. It would have been natural for Noah and his family to wonder, you know, how long would it be? How bad would humanity have to get? before God would once again bring judgment with another flood. So this was perhaps a, a way for God to, to put their mind at ease. You know, they don't have to live their lives looking over their shoulders, so to speak, always fearful of the next judgment of humanity. And God's covenant says that never again will all flesh be cut off. That Hebrew word for cut off is karath, and it means to literally be cut off, to be killed. And I mention that only because it's interesting that that's the same word used in Daniel 9.26 where the prophet Daniel gives his prophecy that the Messiah will be cut off. 
Kadarath killed. And by the way, Daniel lived about 600 years before Jesus. In other words, we have Daniel's words recorded in black and white 600 years before Jesus was even born. Verses 12 through 17, and I'm going to stop at verse 17 here in this episode because there's a shift in the narrative and it just makes for a good place to break. But verse 12 begins, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So this is where God assigns the rainbow as a sign or a token of his covenant with Noah and the rest of life. Now, does this mean that God made a rainbow appear in the sky for the very first time? Well, not unless the laws of physics were different back then. I mean, we know what makes a rainbow, but there's no evidence that that is the case. However, there are a few people, particularly in the young earth camp, who believe that this was the first time the rainbow was seen in the sky, and it was due to the speed of light slowing down from what it was previously, so that now the refraction of the light could be seen for the first time. But again, there's just not a lot of real evidence that the speed of light has ever decreased. And just so you know where this argument that the speed of light was different in the past originates, it has, as its primary supporters, those who believe in a young earth, meaning that the earth is less than about 10,000 years old. They argue that the calculations concerning the vast and almost incomprehensible distances to stars and distant galaxies cannot be correct because if they are, then it's strong evidence for a very old earth and a very old universe. I mean, these distances are so far that we don't even describe them in miles. We describe them in light years, with one light year being the distance that light travels in one year at the speed of 186,000 miles per second, which equates to about 6 trillion miles. The bottom line is that if the speed of light has not changed, then the distances are accurate and the earth and the universe are very old. The earth, you know, around 4.5 billion years old, the universe about 13.8 billion years old. But what's even more amazing for me to consider than those ages is the fact that if those calculations are correct and the universe is 13.8 billion years old, is that God has been here the whole time and even before then. But the problem for the speed of light slowing down as much as would have been required in order to arrive at a universe that's only several thousand years old is that it would have had to slow down not by just a little bit, but on the order of a million times. And the problem is that if it were a million times faster in the past, then we know from Einstein's famous equation from special relativity, you know, the, the E equals MC squared, where energy is equals the mass times the speed of light squared, it would have resulted in so much energy that would have incinerated anything on the earth. I mean, Adam and Eve wouldn't have been able to survive that kind of energy that would have been produced. And so I think it's safe to infer that 
This wasn't the first time that the rainbow appeared on the earth. It was simply that at this time, God used it as a sign. The rainbow was designated as a sign of the covenant. God uses this already common event and he infuses new and sacred significance to it. You know, in the rainbow, it's, it's an interesting symbol to use. Um, you know, the Hebrew word used simply means bow. And it's the same word used for a warrior's weapon, the bow. Same word. But it paints an interesting image. I mean, if you think of the shape of a rainbow, it's as if the, the warrior's bow has been hung up, pointing away from the earth. Meredith Klein wrote that as if the bow, this symbol of hostility, has been now transformed into a token of reconciliation. But what makes any sign, any token, significant? It's not the object itself, but the meaning that's associated with it. And as you know, the rainbow has had many different meanings to people around the world, to different cultures and groups throughout history. I mean, to, to different people, the rainbow symbolizes things such as hope or pride, good luck. It can mean new beginnings or peace and on and on. But in the Bible, God uses it as a sign for the promise that never again will he destroy the earth with a flood. But in closing this episode, I'll leave you with this. In the book of Revelation, you may have heard of the apocalypse and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These four horsemen appear to represent angels of judgment, and at a time, the likes of which we have never seen. But the first horseman appears riding a white horse and initiates the judgment. And guess what he's carrying? A bow. I thank you so much for listening, and until next time, God bless.